Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And this is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss, and shortly we will be talking with Dr. Chris Keel, who always enlightens us about things going on in the economy and the Credit Manager's Index Report. Um, Lou, I'm not sure what Chris is going to say today, but it's probably going to be gray. It may be gray, but knowing Chris the way we do, it'll probably be humorously gray. <laughs> true, true, true. So, uh, so uh, Chris, so let's let's go on, get on to it because I'm not really happy this week. <laughs> you you know, opposed to other weeks. Uh, yeah, 30, 35, yeah. 35 months of growing economy, and now we got whatever it is you're going to tell us about. Right, right, right. Well. The interesting thing is that this month, the credit manager's index looked better than it has looked in a while. Um, so we had a little, little glimmer, I know, a <laughs> little glimmer of hope. And not that there aren't some little landmines in that, in that positive data, but what we have seen over probably the last seven or eight years when we look at the credit manager's index is that it tends to be somewhat predictive and the reason for that is that credit managers as a rule think in the future you know they are not particularly interested in how your business is doing today they want to know how it's going to be doing in 30 60 90 120 days when you owe them um they're kind of like great great glad you're having a great august what do i care you owe me money in november um so they tend to always look at things with that two, three, four month horizon. What they're reacting to in, I think, this month's credit managers index is two relatively positive trends along with some that are not so positive. The positive ones are that companies are becoming a lot more careful as far as their credit is concerned. They're trying to catch up with what they owe. They are paying a lot more attention to their credit status. Some a defensive position. I think what they're trying to do is make sure that if there is a serious downturn, that they're not going to be going into it already in debt. Um, that's good for a credit manager. It means that dollar collections are up. It means that the slow pays have declined a little bit. Um, it means that they're seeing more responsible credit activity. The not-so-good news is that there was a reduction in the number of applications for credit, and there was a little bit of credit extended, and that kind of goes more to that cautious story that companies are like, yeah, this is now not a good time for me to go out there and, and buy. And that matches up with some of the other data that we've seen. For example, the capacity utilization numbers, which generally is an indicator of people investing. You know, if, if you are at capacity and you still have business to do, now is a good time to go out and buy a new machine, hire people. 
we've not seen those capacity numbers at the point where it provokes people to go out and invest. Um, we're also not seeing really good numbers in durable goods. It's always hard to separate the aerospace stuff from the rest of it in durable goods, but durable goods were kind of flat. Many of the things that we're looking at were flat. Automotive was flat. Capital and expenditures have been flat. So it's not tragic at the moment, but you just get this feeling that companies are nervous and they don't quite know what to expect. They're looking at all kinds of stuff, everything from the tariffs and the trade war. They're worried about just the impact of a nasty election year. They see that certain things that they had counted on politically probably aren't going to happen because we're getting too close to an election year. Um, infrastructure, for example, that used to be surefire. I mean, everybody likes infrastructure. You can name a bridge after yourself. You can name a highway after yourself. This is the Senator Blowhard Bridge of Tomorrow. You know, I mean, who doesn't want one of those? And the problem is is that everybody wants one of those, and they're arguing with each other going, I want the bridge in my district. No, I want the bridge in my district. No, I want the bridge in my district. And I'm not going to vote for you unless you vote for me. And so it's completely stalled. Um, So if you and I have talked about this before, but if we could ever find a way to prohibit people with the mentality and emotional maturity of a five-year-old from being in political office, we would do much better. <laughs> uh, you know, Chris, uh, I couldn't wait to butt in on you, and you just kept going and going and going, which is great because <laughs> everything that you said I agree with, and you took all the words out of my mouth. So here's the point. What do we do to fix this mess? What do we do? Well, I mean, we got, we got well, Moscow Mitch. <laughs> we, we got Moscow Mitch, who's – who's basically the president, right? right. And, uh, you know, we have all these guys that are, you know, busy looking to run for office. I mean, the, the great turnaround will be when uh, a certain party wakes up and says, right. oh, my God, I'm going to be voted out of office. Well, one of the interesting theories that is – kind of making a comeback, and it does among political analysts all the time, is that when you get to a level of national dysfunction where we are now, and we've been here before, I mean, it's it's a cycle, generally what ends up happening is that the state and local authorities is, are where you start to see the turnaround, because responsible people, business people, concerned citizens, whoever, they decide they've had enough of this, and they're not ready to run for Senate or the House or the presidency. It's like, nope, I'm going to try the city council. I'm going to become a state legislator. I'm going to do something in my own community, and you end up getting this sort of bottom-up reform. And just within the area that I live in, Kansas, which is a fairly one-trip pony state, very dependent on agriculture, et cetera, we've suddenly gone pragmatic again. Uh, We're electing a bunch of these very responsible local leaders that don't really waste a lot of time with these big national issues and just start to focus on 
Okay, what can we do to help the farmer? Uh, what can we do to help the industry in our state? What can we do to make things better for Camden? And hopefully that, that lights a fire and people begin to start thinking that way at a national level. But it, it takes time and unfortunately the way things are going, we don't have a whole lot of that. <laughs> so it's like we, we need to we need to accelerate this process. So, you know, go talk to your local councilman and say, okay, I know this is intimidating, but you've got to get into the presidential race now. <laughs> well, as the old expression goes, all all politics is local, and it does yeah, start it really there. Is. But un- but unfortunately, it it takes a long time, and uh, we I think that we really have a very serious situation. Uh, going on in our, our country uh, as it is now, without me going into all of the uh, issues and details. Uh, but the point is that I don't see anything happening and moving forward. I don't yeah, see it's it. Very hit and miss. It's, it's very local. I mean, we've talked about this before. That if you ask manufacturers in particular what their biggest issues are, it almost always starts with labor supply. It starts with we can't find the people we need to expand, and we are just dying to have trained people. And then they start talking about the regulatory issues and tax issues and market issues, but it almost always starts with labor. And that's something that has to be tackled aggressively, but you're not going to see immediate results. I mean, you don't just go out and grab somebody and, and you know, give them days worth of training and say, you're ready now. You know, we have to have the schools. There has to be time to train people. We have to be better at luring trained people from other countries to come here. Um, and once they're here, make them feel welcome. Um, you mean before so, we deport them? Yeah, exactly. And it's just... <laughs> It, it is it is very, very foolish policy, even though I understand some of the the social concerns and you know no country wants to be borderless, but on the other hand, we're an aging society. We already have a circumstance where for every retired person, there's only two and a half workers supporting that retired person, and by 2030, it's one person supporting a retired person and that's unsustainable i mean it's ideally you'd be back to where you were in the 70s when there were five or six and we're a long way from that as i remember the number currently is that we are retiring or dying 10,000 people a day in this country and we are our own yeah we're only bringing in 4,000 newbies into the economy right. so yeah i mean if you, you, if you do, do the math, math i mean that that's 10,000 a day that ends up being 3.7 million people leaving the workforce every year and right. that's one of the dirty little secrets about the low unemployment rate people have been trumpeting that as some kind of great accomplishment well the reason we have a low unemployment rate is we have 3.7 million people left the workforce last year the year before that, the year before that, and the year before that. I mean, now we're talking 12 to 15 million people left the workforce. Some of them were replaced. <laughs> so is, that, this that, that, news, that is this fake oh, yeah, news or well, what? Is this fake news? 
you know, it, it would, it would, you know, people look at this and it's like, wow, we have great. Of course, we have good employment numbers. I mean, at some point, though, that that becomes a problem in reverse because once all the boomers are leaving, now you've got Gen X, and Gen X is the smallest of the dem- of the demographics, and then after that, you have millennials. And we're not sure when they're going to start working at all, um, <laughs> much less much less retire. So, uh, right. Yeah, that, so, that, the sixty-five-year-old and me speaking, you know, millennials. So, <laughs> so what do you think, Chris? Uh, where where are we going? What what's the headwinds? Uh, how do we bail out of this m- marsh of gook that we're in? Well, I think it's it's. We're headwinds right now are, are as they've been for the last year. I mean, it's global trade. Um, the tariff situation is just one factor. The the biggest concern is simply that all the other economies in the world have slowed, not necessarily because of anything we've done. Uh, some of it is their own fault. But these are markets that are important to us. We export to them. We import from them. And if they're in trouble, so are we. Um, we are really relying uh, heavily on the consumer, which we always have, but that's, that has its own perils at times. Right now, we've had kind of a combination of, of good luck and bad luck. Like, for example, the tariffs. The tariff that was imposed last weekend is probably going to add roughly $1,000 to the expenses of every consumer in the U.S. in terms of higher prices. Normally, that would be enough to really cause an economic issue. But at the very same time that those prices are going up, gas prices are at the lowest that they have been in almost 10 years. And if you are an average driver who is now filling up their tank for $2.40 rather than $4.20, you have saved $900 a year. So we've literally balanced it off. You know, what we lost in the tariff-imposed inflation, we gained with cheaper gas prices. At the point that gas prices go back up, now we have a problem. Now it's like, oh, so I'm going to be paying $1,000 more for my tube socks and T-shirts, and (laughs) I'm going to be paying more prices for my gas. Oh, no, I don't have enough money anymore. I'm going to have to start cutting back. I will not be able to afford my caramel latte with non-fat dairy soy milk. And <laughs> that's when you have a revolution. And that's when all the guns come out, right? That's exactly. You know, it's just you know that's when that's when they, you, know, you start getting right in the streets. You know, it's like you know, latte or die. Uh, you know that, that's a real, really a bold statement. Uh, I mean, we, we're seeing globally uh, demonstrations and uh, semi-violent demonstrations. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you see that as something happening here? I don't think that we're in that kind of a pattern. We really never have been. We are not a, a demonstrative country in the same sense that other places are. But what I do think you'll see will be kind of a quiet revolution um, where people just become frustrated and and angry with their circumstances. And that tends to manifest 
in consumer behavior. I mean, it's almost as if we, we go on a, a kind of a strike. We become very concerned about the future, and we instinctively do things that are good for us but bad for the economy. That's always the irony. If you're worried about a recession, and many people are, you start to cut back. You start to reduce your debt. You start to do things to protect yourself. Doing that ensures you're going to have a recession because you're now reducing the amount of consumer spending and the economy slows down. Same thing happens with inflation. If you think there's going to be inflation, well, you can go out and buy that big screen TV today because it's going to be more expensive later. And by doing that, you have just delivered inflation. <laughs> so, and, 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 then, and then there was the uh, uh, University of Ohio incident a bazillion years ago when mm-hmm. they took to the streets. So oh, yeah. that, I mean, that may be the last think, time. Well, and it's it, it's the only thing I think that is keeping us from kind of going down that same path is we don't right. have the the foreign war concept. You know, we're not involved in the Vietnam War. We're apparently pulling out of Afghanistan. I don't know if we've declared victory, but we seem to be surrendering to the people we went there to fight. But hey, that's just me. Um, and so it's we don't have that kind of, of national angst, but I do think that if you look at the politics, nobody is in the middle anymore. It's people are either to the right or to the left, and the center is, is kind of just, you know, we're standing there with this look on our face like, what? <laughs> I don't like either yeah. one of you guys. <laughs> it's, it's called the dumb dog look. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's like that, that's like, you know, I mean, there are days when I think I'm tilting my head from one side to the other. So I, <laughs> you know, this isn't making sense to me. <laughs> so, Chris, and, you know, I was just reading a report coming out of the National Association of Manufacturers saying that we'll finish up 2019 around 2 or 2.1 GDP and 2020, maybe one eight. Is that consistent with what you're hearing, seeing, computing? Yeah, very much so. Um, we're seeing a, a kind of, I've mentioned this before, we call it a return to mediocrity. You know, we're not <laughs> heading into a recession. Uh, you know, the Germans are looking at sub 1% growth. Japan is sub 1% growth. I mean, they're really staring recession in the face. Germany will be in full-on recession by the end of the year. We're looking at yeah, 1.8, 1.9, 2.1. It's okay. It's not devastating, but it's what the way I describe it is it's unforgiving growth. If you're a business and you want to expand your territory or get into some new market, if you're in an economy that's growing at 3%, 3.5, you can afford to experiment. If it doesn't work, you still have plenty of activity to sustain your company. When it's growing at 1.8, 1.9, you don't have enough give. And if you make a mistake now, it's really hard to recover from. So it forces everyone to be a lot more cautious, a lot less interested in new markets, new products, new developments. And that eventually just kind of drags the whole economy into a, a period of stagnation. 
Japanification. It's Vaishama's Japanification. It's kind of slumping to the point that Japan's been in for the last three decades, where there's just no growth. Um, you're looking at more deflation than inflation. Um, fortunately, as compared to Japan, our consumers will spend, theirs don't, and that's one of the reasons they slide into these periods. But we're we're dangerously close to that kind of activity. Larry Summers calls it secular stagnation, but it's that same kind of, of nobody really feeling confident to do anything. Consumers not confident enough to buy, businesses not confident enough to expand. Uh, Chris, uh, to your point, uh, we are planning to have a show, and it's going to be an article in our Metals and Manufacturing Outlook e-zine uh, that talks about This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.